Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. Milton Friedman famously argued that the social responsibility of a company is to maximize its profits. Today, Friedman's argument is coming under fire from both sides of the aisle. Shareholder capitalism is viewed with suspicion, and many Americans think workers and consumers are getting a raw deal. Greedy business practices are enriching the few but leaving the rest of us behind, the narrative goes. But are the interests of shareholders and the interests of workers and consumers really opposed? Is American capitalism really a zero-sum game? I'll be discussing these questions today with Alex Edmonds. Alex is a professor of finance at London Business School and the academic director of the Center for Corporate Governance. He's also the author of last year's Grow the Pie, How Great Companies Deliver Both Purpose and Profit. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jim. It's great to be on. Now, Grow the Pie just broadly is about increase. It is about abundance. When I hear splitting the pie, that is about redistribution or scarcity. So in the sense of a business, what does it mean to adopt a pie-growing approach? Yeah, absolutely. So you often think that the value that a company creates is given by a pie, and you can distribute that pie either to investors in the form of profits or society in the form of wages to workers, taxes to the government, or fair prices to customers. And there are some business leaders who think, well, if their goal is to maximize profits, the way to do that is to split the pie differently. For example, cut back investment in employees, charge as high prices as you can, and so forth to maximize your slice. But why I speak about growing the pie is actually the relationship between business and society is not a zero-sum game. So if you're investing in your employees, if you are improving your impact on the environment, then at least to some degree, this might ultimately pay back and increase your profits. Why? Because your employees might become more motivated, more productive, and more likely to stay. So when a business is serving society, ultimately, it might also become more successful in the long term. I think this is really important because often people think about the case for responsible business highlighting the moral case or the ethical case. But I think the business and financial case is is really important, right? Businesses are not charities. They need to deliver long-term returns to their investors. And so this shows that there is a financial case for responsibility, not just a moral case. So is this just a fancy rebranding of shareholder capitalism? If not, how does it differ from stakeholder capitalism, all phrases that get thrown around a lot in the in the business press and elsewhere. Yeah, so what's interesting is I, answering this question itself is tricky because there's not even a clear definition of stakeholder capitalism, right? So this is something where loads of people have jumped on that bandwagon, yet you can't find a clear definition anywhere, not even on, on Wikipedia. But at least the loosely defined views of stakeholder capitalism is that a company needs to increase the value it creates for stakeholders, be this workers or, or taxes or um, customer well-being. And often people who believe in stakeholder capitalism also have the pie-splitting mentality the other way. right? So if they view business as being a fixed pie, the only way that you can increase the share that goes to society 
is by reducing profits. So this might involve heavy regulation. This might involve restrictions on dividends and buybacks, strong restrictions on CEO pay. So I think the big difference between my view and stakeholder capitalism is to view the relationship between business and society as not being a zero-sum game, as being something which is a positive-sum game. And actually, many things to help businesses become more profitable are also potentially good for society. And while that might seem sort of too good to be true, too good to be true and wishful thinking, actually it's backed up by a lot of evidence. There's many things that are actually beneficial to shareholders, even shareholder activism by hedge funds often seem to be the most maligned parts of society. That has been shown to create long-term value, not only for shareholders, but also for wider society. Are you telling companies that they should be doing something that they're not? Or are you giving us a different perspective on how to view current business practices? I think it's the latter. It's a different perspective on, on how to view current business practices. Well, often people think the role of a company is to maximize shareholder value. And they think, well, this involves maximizing short-term profits. And so there might be some behavior such as cutting wages and cutting investments. But Finance 101 tells you that shareholder value is an inherently long-term concept. It's the present value of all future cash flows from a company. And that's not just something in a finance textbook. That's something in the real world. If you look at some of the most valuable companies today, such as Tesla or Amazon, they're valued at far higher than their current cash flows. So even if a company's responsibility is to maximize shareholder value, then what this means is that this involves a lot of long-term investment in stakeholders such as employees and customers and suppliers uh, and the like. But more importantly, this also speaks to business reformers, right? They're saying, well, in order for us to repurpose capitalism, we need to get rid of this idea of shareholder value. Let's redefine directors' duties so that directors don't need to pay so much attention to shareholders. Let's redesign CEO pay so CEOs are accountable for ESG targets rather than shareholder value. But when we correct acknowledge that shareholder value is something like the long-term stock price, then this suggests a quite different solution. Well, if we want to redesign executive pay, then there's perhaps nothing wrong with giving the CEO shares that she must hold for five to seven years rather than these fancy ESG targets. Similarly, shareholder activism is not necessarily a bad thing if the activism is by long-term oriented shareholders who have this long-term perspective in mind when they're trying to restructure a company. All right, it's time for the Milton Friedman question, which I'm sure you assumed you would be getting within the first five minutes of our conversation. Milton Friedman famously wrote (laughs) that that the social responsibility of business is increasing profits. Do you give that one cheer, two cheers, or three cheers, with three cheers being maximum? I think I'd give it one cheer or maybe one and a half if I was to be fence-sitting. So most people would give it zero cheer. So I think it's almost come to the point that to be accepted into polite society, you need to explain why Milton Friedman was an idiot. And so anybody who wants to be seen as a business reformer will take his quote and say, look, the current model of business is that you should focus only on profits. And this is extremely reductive and narrow-minded. Shouldn't companies also serve wider society? But often people criticize Friedman without even reading beyond his title. He says explicitly in his article that in order to maximize profits, you do need to think about society. You do need to treat your your workers well. 
Otherwise, they'll leave and you're not going to make profits in the long term and so on. So I'll give him one or maybe one and a half cheers because there are many reasons why a focus on profits, as long as it's long term profits, will help wider society. But why I don't have to give him the full three cheers is um, for two um, important reasons. So number one is his implicit argument is that even if the shareholders of a company care about social objectives, let's say climate change, it's better for the company just to maximize profits and then pay them out to dividends uh, to shareholders and they can donate to a, a climate charity. But that's often not efficient, right, because it might be better for the company itself to reduce its carbon footprint than to pollute as much as it possible and then allow you to donate to charity because you're just much more effective at reducing your carbon footprint directly. So in more economics language, a company has a comparative advantage at reducing its carbon footprint, it can do that much more than if it was to give the money to a charity to lobby for some carbon tax and so on. So that's one big reason. And the second important reason is Friedman's idea of let's maximize profits is instrumental. So he says you should only take an investment if you can calculate the benefits of that investment and how it's going to impact profits. And sort of that works if we're thinking about investing in a factory. We can estimate how many widgets the factory will produce and how much we can sell that for. And finance professors like me say you chuck that into a net present value calculation and see whether you should make the investment. But when you're investing in stakeholders, a lot of these investments, it's really difficult to predict their future benefits. So if I was to give greater parental leave to my company, yes, I've got some sense that my employees might be motivated and more productive. I've got no way of estimating that. So I think the sort of limitation of Friedman is if you're trying to justify every decision with a financial calculation, is it going to increase long-term profits? It will actually prevent you from many decisions that ultimately are good for the company such as giving greater parental leave, why? Just because you weren't able to reduce them and justify them with a financial calculation. So long story short, ironically, not pursuing profits directly might actually allow the company to become more profitable in the long term because it frees you from having to justify every decision um, with a financial calculation. So that's why I am a supporter of some stakeholder approaches to business, despite me understanding the importance of shareholder value and profits and dividends. I, I'm sure this is a topic that you uh, discuss and occasionally debate with people who would consider themselves uh, pro-stakeholder or pro, or maybe even stakeholder activists. Do they have a problem with the notion of profits? That they view profits as as just a necessary evil, or do they view profits as a as a good thing? How do they how do they just con more broadly conceptualize a notion of a company earning a profit? So I think many of them view profits as value extraction, and indeed some of the language that you see is consistent with that. So you reap profits, you extract profits, you take profits, as if you're plundering this from from other people. I think this just fails to recognize number one is that profits are a byproduct of creating value, right? Some of the most 
profitable companies today are profitable because they've innovated, they've been fantastic at customer service and all of those things. And I think number two is, is they don't recognize that role that investors play, right? Investors put up their capital and that's capital that they could have consumed or they could have invested elsewhere. They put this in and it's risky. If the company does badly, then they lose all their money. And if the company does well, it, they deserve to get profits. So just like employees contribute their labor and they get wages, suppliers supply their inputs and they get um, revenues from that. Similarly, investors contribute capital and they should receive profits or dividends or capital gains for that. But I think many people just don't realize that profits are in return for something. They think, well, what have investors done? They've not actually manufactured the widget, but they have contributed to capital. And so that's, again, another reason why people think profits are a windfall. You get them for free for not doing anything, but you have done something. You have risked a lot of your own capital in order to finance the company. Well, let me take that last question just one, uh, one step further. Is there an inherently socialist sort of worldview at the heart of sort of the stakeholder movement uh, broadly. Is that, does that greatly influence the view? I think it's difficult for me to answer the question because I, I'm not sure how I would define socialist because I think just different people have different views. But I, 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 I would say I think it, what's behind this is the pie-splitting mentality, the idea that business and society have a zero-sum relationship. Mm-hmm. And what is behind that, I, I think if you look at just how we grow up as kids, right, many things we do are, are playing zero-sum games. We often think that the wealth, that if somebody wins, the other person loses. Also, historically, most wealth was in the form of land, and land is zero-sum, right? If I get some land, then you've got less land. But nowadays, when wealth is in financial terms, it's not necessarily zero-sum, right? A company can just create tons of wealth by, by being innovative. Who does that wealth go to? Some of it will go to employees, some of it will go to shareholders, some of it will go to uh, the management team. But the management team's wealth is not at the expense of everybody else. And in fact, it's a byproduct of creating value in which uh, many stakeholders share. So I think it's just that the, the, the view, the, the understanding that, sorry, the, the misperception that the pie is fixed. And this is supported in part by um, some what I call degrowth economics. Mm-hmm. So there have been some books like Donut Economics, which argue, well, that companies can't grow too much because they're going to be um, exceeding some planetary boundaries. And, and I do take planetary boundaries and the environment really, really seriously, but I think they have a very narrow view of growth as being something which is going to definitely use far more resources. That is true for some things, but there are other types of growth, which are innovations coming up with great new ideas, great products, new ways to engage your workforce and to provide people with a healthy and enriching workplace, new production techniques to get more with less. And I think these are the things that we should be encouraging. Those are things that make a company more profitable, but also improve its impact on wider society. And so when I speak about growing the pie, I'm not talking about sort of growing the firm or becoming bigger in terms of using up a lot of resources. I'm talking about creating social value, human capital, natural capital, and, and, and so forth of which financial capital, i.e. profits, will be one slice, but not the only slice. For people who are critical of 
particularly Amer what they will call American-style capitalism, which they view as too focused on shareholders. What flavor of capitalism do they like, and where is it practiced, and how is it doing? I think if people who are concerned about the American style of capitalism, um, I think some parts of American capitalism are, are actually what they want. So I think they often view every feature of American or UK capitalism as, as being the same when there's some companies that are doing well and some companies that are, that are not. So I think the features that they are legitimately critical about might involve the following. It might involve companies with more short-term executive pay contracts, so where you're paid according to hit a quarterly earnings target or maybe an annual um, target. It might involve small dispersed shareholders and those are shareholders where because they don't have enough skin in the game, they're not engaging with the company, they're not looking beyond simply disclosed financial numbers to trying to evaluate its um, corporate culture and, and other intangible assets. But there are companies within the, the UK and the US where you do have large engaged investors and also companies thinking um, for the long term. So, so one example in the UK is Unilever. So that's a company which many, many years ago uh, launched the sustainable living plan to try to make sustainable living commonplace. And why do they do that? Like partly there is the moral and the ethical case, but what was also important was the business and financial case. So they did a, analyses internally which found that their sustainable living brands, which were the ones that were most closely aligned with their purpose of making sustainable living commonplace, actually grew significantly faster than all of the other brands. And, and so this was something that customers were, were recognizing. And so they thought, well, let's try to actually genuinely embrace sustainability because it's good business sense. How do they make sure that they actually put this into practice? Well, Paul Pullman, when he became CEO, he stopped reporting quarterly earnings because he thought that that would just lead to short-termism. And also his executive pay structure was such that after he retired, he had to hold 500% of his salary in equity in Unilever. So his horizon was even longer than his tenure within the firm. So he was thinking about uh, investments that paid off even after he departed. He was somebody who was very concerned about succession planning. So you can absolutely be long-termist even in um, an Anglo-American capitalist system, which does emphasize shareholder primacy. But again, shareholder primacy doesn't mean being short-termist. There's many shareholders with long-term perspectives. And uh, what you need to do is just to make sure that indeed companies are thinking about long-term shareholder value rather than short-term or quarterly earnings. So one common critique of, we'll say, American-slash-UK-style capitalism, but particularly in the United States, is portrayed as a, a result of shareholder capitalism is you know, sky high, I think that's a common phrase, very high American executive, American CEO pay. Uh, they'll point to figures that the average CEO makes, you know, several hundred times that of the average worker, and they can point to other countries where it's less. So is there a problem that American CEOs make too much money compared to what their workers make? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think when people think that this is a problem, they might think that it's a problem for two separate reasons. One of them is the impact on the company. 
And the second is going to be the impact on wider society. So let's think about the impact on the company. So people might say, well, this is a problem because that high CEO pay could have been instead be spent on workers or spent on research development. If the CEO wasn't so greedy, there would be more money to, to invest elsewhere. But this is why what matters is not having this fixed price perspective, thinking, well, is that pay at the expense of others? But the pie growing perspective, has that pay been earned through creating long-term sustainable value for both shareholders and wider society? And indeed, this is where academic research will come in, showing that actually pay is very tightly linked to performance. So in the typical, I think it's S&P 500 company in the US, a 1% reduction in um, shareholder returns will reduce a CEO's wealth by half a million dollars. So they do have a lot of wealth on, on the hook here. Now, when I was um, in UK Parliament, I was called up to testify in this inquiry in corporate governance. The witness before me, which was the trade union, like the equivalent of the AFL-CIO, they quoted evidence claiming that the greater the CEO to worker pay ratio, the lower the company's performance because the company wasn't investing enough or because employees just felt demotivated. That's just so unfair. Now, what they did was they quoted a half finished paper. Now, that finished paper was actually out. It was out three years before the inquiry. And after that paper went through peer review and corrected its mistakes, it actually found the opposite result. So the greater the disparity between the CEO and the worker pay, the higher the long-term performance of the company. And that could be because you're attracting a great CEO, or maybe it could be that causality is the other way. Maybe the company did well, and that's why the CEO was richly paid. But regardless of that inter interpretation, there doesn't seem to be strong evidence at all that it's bad for the company if a CEO is well richly paid. So why do American CEOs seem to make, and assuming this is correct, why they seem to make so much more than CEOs elsewhere compared to their workers? Is it just because they're, they have, uh, they're, 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 the companies are, are more successful and they have more global reach, that sort of thing? What's, what's the reason there? It's a couple of reasons. I think one is the global reach that, that, that you're saying is that, well, what happened, what's happened over the last, um, let's say, 30 or 40 years or so, is that companies have grown substantially. And so why does that matter? Because a CEO's actions are scalable. So if a CEO adds, let's to be conservative, 1% of a company's value, if the company's value is $2 billion, that's $20 million. If the average value of a company is 20 billion, which I think is around the average within the S&P 500, even 1% of that is 200 million. So the average salaries of let's say 10 to $15 million, that actually doesn't seem so, so huge. So when companies become so large, right, because the CEO has a multiplicative effect on the company, whatever action they do, can be scaled firm-wide, that's why it might be fair to pay them um, high salaries to reflect the impact of their talent. Now, when you contrast that with the average employee, so people think, well, why has CEO pay gone up so much, but the average employee's pay has been flat? Let's think about an engineer, Why right? that's a highly skilled job. But if an engineer can only service, let's say, 50 machines a year, that is 50 machines, irrespective 
of whether the company is a $20 billion company or a $2 billion company. So an engineer is not so scalable. And that might be the same for some other professions which are highly skilled, such as being dentists, right? You might only be able to, to um, deal with the, the same number of patients um, every year. But also we do see the same increase that we see for CEOs in any other scalable profession. So professional services like private equity and hedge funds, their pay has gone up, but it's also gone up in, in sports, right? If you think of, say, um, Derek Jeter or Alex Rodriguez's salary compared to Babe Ruth, right? They're earning far more money, even after you take inflation into account. Why? Because sports is a global marketplace. J.K. Rowling is not clearly more talented than Jane Austen, yet she receives far more money as well, again, because the books can be sold around the world and be turned into movies and, and so on. So any scalable talent is going to be well rewarded in a global marketplace. And this is why if we think about, we're concerned about the social effects of inequality. It's just wrong for some people to have too much of the wealth. They can get their kids into university and so on. Then I think the better way to address this is, is through the tax system, because a progressive income tax, that's one that addresses high pay from all sources, not just CEOs, but sports stars, movie stars, reality TV stars, hedge fund managers, and so on, rather than singling out CEOs in isolation. The other sort of manifestation that is pointed to as a, as a sign that uh, shareholder capitalism, American capitalism is broken, is short-termism. These companies are too short-term focused, and that's why they don't invest enough. And instead, they're using all that money for stock buybacks rather than investing in workers or, or new equipment or, or so forth. Uh, I wonder if you could just, just kind of tackle that argument for a moment. Yeah, and I think the way I'll tackle any argument as a professor is by looking at the evidence. So the charge there is a common one, which is, well, if um, you weren't paying out so much to, to shareholders, then you would be um, instead investing in workers. So a very common statistic is one by uh, William Lazonic, and he claims, I think, that 91% of net income goes to shareholders when it should have been invested in worker wages instead. But that number just makes no sense to begin with. Right? Net income is already after deducting wages. So obviously, it can't go to wages because wages have already come out of, of profits. It's just like saying, oh, the kids couldn't have had much to eat because their plates are empty. Well, the plates are empty because they've eaten all the food. Now, let's think about the specific charges about do buybacks lead to short-termism. There was a seminal study in 1995, which looked at what happens to the long-term stock price after companies undertake share buybacks. So the short-term stock price goes up. But what they found was that if you look at four years down the line, it goes up even more. And while that study was written in 1995, it was updated in 2018, and that continues to hold. And interestingly, not just in the US, where the original study was based, but also throughout the world. And finally, we've got some evidence as to, well, the companies that engage in buybacks, well, what is actually happening with the cash? Well, we've seen the cash, cash holdings have soared over the last couple of decades. So this idea that companies have engaged in buybacks and therefore have starved themselves of cash so that they cannot invest, this is not the case because um, cash balances are extremely high at, at close to record levels. There's some great work by Harvard professors, Jess Fried and Charlie Wang showing this. So 
if you look at the evidence carefully, this idea that buybacks actually lead to short-termism is, is not there. Finally, I um, was actually um, asked by the UK government to do a study. So the Conservative government, as part of their manifesto, promised that if they got elected, they would conduct a study to look at the misuse of share buybacks, because there seems to be a, a concern here. What we found is that over the 10-year period we studied, not a single FTSE 350 company was able to hit an earnings target by undertaking buybacks. So if you think about the common mantra, which is CEOs are undertaking buybacks to boost their earnings per share to hit some target, this did not happen even once in the data. And yeah, we had an incentive to try to find that there was because obviously our study would have been really famous if we uncovered malfeasance, but it just wasn't there in the data and we didn't want to manipulate the data to give a result that was gonna get us uh, famous. Should companies report on a quarterly basis are you, or, or, or should it just be an annual number? I, I'm more towards annual because I do think quarterly earnings reporting can lead to short-termism and there's many um, pieces of evidence supportive of that. But I, I might not have this as sort of an ab, outright prohibition. I might have something like comply or explain. So that's what corporate governance is like in the UK. You might have a general rule that you should only report um, annually. But... If you want to report quarterly, you can do that as long as you explain why you're doing it. And there might be some companies where just because there's um, so, so more shorter cycles or maybe because there's problems about information asymmetry where investors do want more timely information, then it might be better to do quarterly for some cases. But I do think that the benchmark should be uh, less frequently than that, so annually or semi-annually. To finish up, are there policy changes? You're not making a status quo argument. So what policy changes would you make to encourage more long-term thinking? Just uh, are, are there a couple, two or three? Yeah, let me say three things. I think number one, in terms of just general long-term thinking, things such as imp- increasing the horizon of CEO pay. So in the UK, the new corporate governance code increased the minimum horizon from three years to five years, something like maybe a comply or explain provision to move towards semi-annual or annual reporting will help with that. So that's number one. Uh, number two is, um, yes, I, I, I do believe that many things should be left to the market and to, to companies, but markets fail. And one of the main market failures is externalities. So the government's role should be to internalize these externalities through, for example, through a, a carbon tax. And number three is another reason why markets fail is the lack of competition, right? So if indeed a company is not responsible, then workers and customers can vote with their feet and go elsewhere. But if a company has a monopoly or close to that in an industry, then that's not possible. So stronger enforcement of antitrust is also a way in which we can correct these market failures and therefore increase companies' incentives to act responsibly, responsibly because if they don't, then customers and workers can walk away. Again, the book is Grow the Pie, How Great Companies Deliver Both Purpose and Profit. Alex, great stuff. Thanks for coming on. Really enjoyed it, Jim. Thanks so much for having me. 